welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tassiography or palmistry. It's a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, he looks a little guilty. Was it the professor in the reading room with the muddler, perhaps? It's my co-host, Frank Gaylard. To try and murder someone with a muddler. That would have to be a very large drink that you were preparing. The the largest mojito ever. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah, Professor Plum in the greenhouse with the muddler or slapping his mint. <laughs> this episode today, Frank, is a forensic radiology themed episode mm-hmm. for the main segment. So hence, I thought I'd go with a bit of a, a Cluedo reference up top. So we're going to be listening back to a panel discussion from Radiopedia 2022 featuring Jeremy Jones, Chris O'Donnell and... Claire Robinson. So uh, looking forward to listening to that. Excellent. I've only ever played Cluedo once or twice, I think. I mm. love I love the idea of board games. My son and I, my eldest son, who loves the idea of board games, especially really complicated ones, will mm. like go to Mind Games, which is our local uh, game shop, and we'll look through all the board games and pick one and then come home and read the 30 or 40 page manual of how to play and then we play it like once and then it's like (laughs) oh it goes on the shelf it's really more the fun of picking the board game than uh the actual playing and it's also hard because my youngest son he he doesn't mind board games provided he wins all right that's not that much fun because the one fun part about playing board games with 10 year olds is defeating them (laughs) One of the things I don't like much about board games is actually the competitiveness. And I kind of like those ones where you work as a team against mm, the There's board. some good collaborative ones. Yeah. There's one that we play, Lord of the Rings, and it's similar to what you described there because there's this book, you know, like 40-page description of how to play the game. And we only play it over summer when we're down at my in-law's place and yeah. my brother-in-law will get out the book and read the rules and he knows all the rules. None <laughs> of us know how to play the game, but because it's collaborative, we just sit down and we're holding our cards and he just tells us what to do. He's like, <laughs> oh, Andrew, you play this and then I'll play that. And it's, it's actually quite fun because we're just like, eh, he'll just tell us what to do. We'll just hang out. We've <laughs> and been, we always win. <laughs> we've been playing Pandemic. Have you ever played Pandemic? I have once or twice again, as you said, once or twice. That's a collaborative one. And we've been playing it on the easiest setting, Mm -hmm. cheating, and And we still still haven't won, which just goes to show if there's actually a pandemic, like we, we, there has been one recently, I think, from memory, um, (laughs) we're screwed. Like you can't beat it. That's the the moral of the story. We should have known. The game came out first. We should have known that it's inevitable. We weren't going to win. Just let it go. Let it go. Now, I did actually write down some random Cluedo trivia, if you're interested, Scala. I thought we needed a little bit of positive stuff to talk about up top. So I won't test you. I'll just read them out and you can, maybe you can just react like a YouTuber. (laughs) (laughs) Just be over the top excited. The 10 most amazing things you've never heard about Cluedo. Oh, sorry. I haven't got 10, but that's that's okay. The five. (laughs) (laughs) Now, so the Cluedo board game was invented in the early 1940s by Anthony Pratt and his wife, Elva who came up with it while they were holed up at their home in Birmingham during World War II air raids. Huh. And they patented it and then they sold it to UK games manufacturer Waddington's in 1948. Mm-hmm. So they named it Cluedo, which is a blend of the word clue 
and Ludo. Ludo was a uh, the name of a game in the 19th century that's Latin for I play. So there was kind of this already existing game. Uh, so they're kind of doing a play okay. on words there. But then when Parker Brothers picked up the rights and took it into America in 1949, so just a year later, they shortened it down to Clue. So the Americans know it as Clue, whereas I think in Australia we pretty much call it Cluedo, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's, what is it with this renaming of things? Americans do it all the time. <laughs> they do it all like the time. Harry Potter, Sorcerer's Stone was, what was it, Philosopher's Stone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or so they changed, they changed it to Sorcerer's Stone. Apparently Philosopher didn't sound right to them. It happens the other way as well. I remember that, you know, Die Hard 4.0 in Australia. <laughs> in, in America, that was actually called Live Free and Die Hard because um. apparently there's a state motto in Massachusetts, which is live free or die or something like that so that was a, a kind of a known saying for them and there's lots of examples actually i looked it up on wikipedia earlier today yeah there's lots of examples where you know things have been changed just because you know there might be overlap between how things are interpreted in different yeah. parts of the world there are some words that you can definitely understand why you would change it i remember one of my ex-girlfriends she went on exchange to america and she mm-hmm. arrived at the family home where she was staying and uh, the father was there and, and the daughter, who was going to be her classmate, whatever you call it, uh, wasn't there yet. And he was showing her around the house and they got to the mantelpiece and the father said, oh, yes, and, and, and there's, you know, Helen. She's the one with the enormous fanny. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I mean, for our listeners, the, the word fanny has a distinctly different meaning in America to Australia yeah. and the U.K., and it would be very inappropriate for a father to comment <laughs> <laughs> on someone's fanny. Yeah, fanny pack is definitely a word we don't use here. <laughs> the other one that I remember, I think this was from like a Winter Olympic Games way back, and there was a brand big in Canada and maybe the US as well called Roots. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, everyone's talking about, oh, how good's Roots? <laughs> it means a, di- a different thing in Australia when you're uh, rooting. But surely philosopher and sorcerer are both words that are recognized. I think so. I think this was, that was the very first Harry Potter book and right. you know, it was still very much unknown. I think if they had their time again and they knew it was going to be a success, they wouldn't have argued on the title. They would yeah. have gone, whatever you like, JK. We're happy yeah, with that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps, you know, we should call this podcast different things in different parts of the world because, you know, in Australia, we tend to call it, well, at least at my hospital, we call it the reporting room rather mm-hmm. than the reading room. So maybe this should be the Radiopedia reporting room podcast in Australia, but the reading room podcast in the US. <laughs> we are at, at my hospital, we call it the bunker <laughs> where you do the reading. But I did bring the expression to do a readout back with me from Canada. I don't think there's a good alternative expression in Australian to the act of going through cases. Mm, we do that as well. We call it, you know, reading out. You're, you're rostered to do a readout. So you go and sit with the overnight yeah. registrar and read out their cases with them. But generally, we still refer to it as a reporting room rather yeah. than a, yeah, a reading room. But I wonder if there are different terms in different parts. Well, let us know yeah. in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> Is that YouTube enough? <laughs> I've got more little random facts here. Oh, yes, quick. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the original murder implements, mm-hmm. uh, weapons, they were sketched by Elva herself. And apparently they were quite gruesome. So there was an axe and a cudgel, which is a stick, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like a muddler, I guess. <laughs> yes. uh, a small bomb, a rope, <laughs> a dagger, a revolver, a hypodermic needle. That's cool. Poison and a fire poker. So they were the originals. And then, so they kept the rope and the gun and the dagger. 
and then added three new weapons. Do you know what the three weapons were that they added? No, no you're not a big enough fan of the game. No. The candlestick. But aren't they all blunt instruments? They kind of are. Because, I mean, the, the it, dagger's not. And no, the remind me of, of the game. You have to work out where, who the murderer was and what the weapon mm-hmm. was, right? Correct. Yeah, the three things. Ha- yeah. How could you confuse a rope with a small bomb? Surely even <laughs> even the most amateur of forensic pathologists would be That's able true. to distinguish between those. That is true. So therefore, they probably did try and go towards more blunt force objects. This is related to the topic for today. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so a candlestick, a wrench, and a lead pipe. The classic with yeah, the lead pipe. That, that would be hard to distinguish, right? The idea of the game is you don't get to examine the body, unfortunately. <laughs> that would be better. Now, more random facts. Uh, Colonel Mustard was originally Colonel Yellow. Hmm. Uh, I think Mustard's a better choice. Much. And then in uh, 2008, Hasbro in the US, they revised the game and brought in a, a trophy and an axe. They brought back the axe and a baseball bat. There's mm-hmm. new weapons. And they switched the Colonel from being a uh, war hero to being a sports hero. So a few little changes. And then in 2016, the housekeeper, so Mrs. White, she was permanently killed off, tragic, and replaced with a new character, Dr. Orchid, a female scientist. And that actually, um, it reminds me, when I looked at a clip earlier from the Clue movie, which was in 1985, they did the opposite. They actually added in a new character, which was Mm. a sexy French maid. (laughs) Now, is Clue movie, was that known as Cluedo in Australia and the UK? I think it was actually called Clue Everywhere, that one. Mm. And I think when I saw it, I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. They've deliberately changed the name because maybe they don't want to <laughs> infringe copyright or something. But no, it was, no, it was known as Clue in the US. Well, that is possibly much more information about Cluedo than I ever wanted or needed to know. You're the worst YouTube reactor I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> is this where you're going to break the news to all our listeners that we're pivoting from being a radiology podcast to being a board game review and <laughs> trivia? <laughs> Mate, it's it's light and shade. It's quite a heavy uh, main segment in the podcast today, so I thought I'd, I'd lead off with something light, hence the, uh, hence the Cluedo. Oh, hey, speaking of reviews, before mm-hmm. uh, we move on, have you seen Oppenheimer? Not yet, no. Seeing it in two days. It's good. I took my 12-year-old son. We went to see it at the cinemas. It's long. It's it's like three, three hours. hours of mm. people in small rooms talking to each other. If you're going <laughs> expecting a lot of a lot of special effects or a lot of explosions, there's really very scene. little. Yeah. yeah, it's maybe two minutes and the rest is just close-ups of people with wrinkles <laughs> talking to each other. <laughs> but it's great. Really like. Well, it. maybe we can we can really chat about good. it on a future episode. But um, let's get into this week's main segment. So this was a panel hosted by Jeremy Jones at Radiopedia 2022. So a year ago now, Jeremy had just given a lecture on how to be an expert radiology witness and how to give evidence. And he's chatting with Claire Robinson, who's a consultant radiographer at the University Hospitals of Leicester NHS Trust, where she has been involved in post-mortem imaging for more than 20 years. And Chris O'Donnell, who's a world-renowned necro-radiologist, that's a cool word, mm-hmm. and consultant forensic radiologist at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine here in Melbourne. So this recording does involve discussion of death, uh, including homicide, as well as child abuse. So listener discretion is definitely advised. It is a, a fascinating discussion. So we'll listen into that now, and then Frank and I will be back for another chat. Um, I'm joined today by Drs. Claire Robinson from Leicester and Chris O'Donnell from Melbourne. Hi, guys. It's great to have you uh, with us. 
Now, I've got a couple of questions just off the back of those talks. And the first one really is about how we got involved. So I wonder if I could come to you first, Claire. How did you get involved in this area of radiology? It wasn't until I came to Leicester that I knew anything about forensic radiography. I'd never heard of it before. I was invited to go down to the mortuary and help do an x-ray. And I got talking to one of the pathologists down there and he wanted to do some research. And that's how it started. So your first foray into post-mortem radiology was really forensic radiology. Yes. So, yeah, as a radiographer, I was, the, I was going down to the mortuary at the time taking the x-rays and then we've progressed and now we're doing PMCT more. What about you, Chris? How did you get involved in post-mortem work? I'm a clinical radiologist and I was getting a bit bored with my clinical work. So I made an approach to our Institute of Forensic Medicine here in 2002. One of my colleagues' wife is actually a forensic pathologist. So at a Christmas party, I just said, can I come <laughs> along? And she said, yes. So we start off with just plain films. And I've always had this sort of aim of trying to get clinical imaging or the, the techniques that we have in clinical imaging into forensic post-mortem imaging. And so it was a slow process. We had computed radiography, then we got digital radiography, and we managed to get a CT scanner in the mortuary and we're up to our third CT now, and just in the process of tendering for MRI. So it's been a sort of slowly progressive process since I started in 2002. A CT scan went in 2005, and next year we'll have MRI. So it's been a sort of slowly progressive process of just getting it installed, and now biologists are absolutely dependent on it. So now we've become a really important part of medical legal death investigations. So they can't do without us if we break down, the biologists start screaming because they, they want the scans. Yeah, and that came across in your talk, just the idea that actually the CT is really helpful for making the pathologists making decisions that they need to make. You say you've got three CT scanners? No, no, third. Oh, this CT is your third. We've replaced, <laughs> yes. We've, we started with a Toshiba. We, that went for about six or seven years, and then we replaced that with a Siemens. We're just about to upgrade to a new one this, this year. Because you really put the CTs through their paces. I mean, you're doing head-to-toe. We probably do 25 to 30 cases a day, and they're head-to-toe scans, full-bore. There's no dose modulation or anything. It's, it's just full-bore radiation dose, so it really slams the tubes. And yeah. the first scanner we had really was a big problem. We were burning tubes out left, right, and center. The Stratton tube in the Siemens is a lot better, and we haven't had as many problems. But it does it does take a toll on the scanners. So after sort of six, seven years, they're having more and more problems with maintenance and so forth. So that's why we have to keep upgrading. And plus, we oh, want to get the new stuff. We do a lot of dual energy, spectral imaging. So we want to try and keep up to date as well the latest technologies as well as just making sure that we've got something that's robust. So Claire, as a radiographer, how did you feel about the first time you um, scanned a dead person and had the, the scanner up at full whack? Yes, it was a little unnerving. It, it really is a balance uh, because we still use clinical scanners. So all mm. of our post-mortem work is done on a scanner that is still used for clinical radiology. So we have to have that balance that we do the best quality imaging that we can for the post-mortem work, as Chris mm. has said, but we don't burn our tube out because obviously we don't want to, we're in a, a clinical scanner. So it's, it's a fine line, it's a, it's a balance, but we scan every 15 minutes for the deceased. And as long as you don't push it too hard, it doesn't seem to be taking too much for a toll on our scanner. What sort of numbers are you doing then? We scan about eight or 10 patients a day. We only have the scanner for half a day each, Monday to Friday. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that meets the, uh, the demand that we're, that's placed on us at the moment. And as far as the, the forensic stuff, the, the victim identification, I think the thing that struck me with this idea of imaging the body and the bag, which was slightly disturbing to hear a little bit. Yes, I think when you start getting involved in this work, you do have to start to think a little bit differently. But as well, remember that they are still a patient. It's still someone's loved one, but it does take a little bit of a mind shift. But yeah, when you're doing, when you're doing, particularly when you're looking at fragmented remains or people who have suffered very bad trauma, it, it, they will be bagged and having to scan the whole bag, make sure that you're in, you, will, you will scan the entire body. Mm. I remember when I was in, in Melbourne doing my fellowship, we had some of our uh, children who were then scanned at the VIFM uh, where you were, Chris, and it was that whole situation of actually the whole the whole bag was came back, even though they were a tiny little child, um, which was uh, a surprising thing and a bit different from normal clinical work. It's, it's yeah. all about evidentiaries. So what's in the bag is is what comes to us to be examined, and we basically scan the bag without opening it, so that we have a permanent digital record of what has come to us. That goes into our database as stored data. And so, especially in DVI, where you may have severely fragmented uh, remains, you don't know what in that bag, what's bones, what's debris, what's animals, what's other things. And so what you need to do is document everything that's in the bag first. Um, mm. And then if necessary, you can open the bag and, and remove things and so forth. But that at least at the start, we always have this first digital record that uh, is available for so-called digital exhumation. So should an issue come up in the future about maybe something that was missing or whatever, you can always go back to that original scan and survey that and then say, well, you know, it was there or it wasn't there so that um, we're confident with uh, what we're looking at. So I've got two technical questions for you, actually, uh, Chris. I think probably one is very easy and one might be a bit more technical. The first is the blue metal imaging that you're using. Why do you use that? <laughs> blue metal is just a really good one. I mean, it doesn't have to be blue. It can be any other color. Siemens tends to do it in red. Um, it's just the first scanner I had. I had a Toshiba, which we had Vitria, and Vitria just mm-hmm. came out blue. And so it just is with blue metal, it's sort of a nice word. So I, I create the templates myself. So I've, I've created blue for all our ongoing scanners. We use Singovia as our workstation. So mm-hmm. I've just put in my own little program and uh, blue metal and basically it's just a 3d map of anything with a very high Hounsford unit density it's not specific for metal obviously because it's it's all on Hounsford units so the enamel of teeth will show up and the dentist bone in the body which is the otic capsule around the uh, inner ear also will show up often in blue metal Mm. You, you know that because we can recognize it and then anything else that's metallic tends to show up and it's a really good way to survey the body in 3d you can rotate it and whatever find out where these things are located and then you can go to the axial coronal and sagittal recons to get a better view of what it actually is that's interesting um and the postmortem cta how does that work and it's sort of a part two question is if you've got somebody who is brain dead because of cerebral edema in life and they're not getting any contrast into their brain in a contrast CT scan when they're scanned clinically, how do you get contrast in their post-mortem? So I'll answer two questions. First is CT angiography. Claire does it a bit differently in Leicester. We have a technique of whole body CTs, uh, CT angiography. So we cannulate usually the femoral artery and the femoral vein 
and we basically just fill the entire vascular system with contrast. So it's about three litres of contrast diluted in a one in 10 solution using a substance called polyethylene glycol, which is a bit like warm honey. So it makes it quite viscous and fills every artery and every vein pretty much. Surprisingly, after death, most blood does not clot. You do get some clotting, but most blood doesn't clot. So you can actually fill the entire vascular tree with contrast and then you just do CT. So we use it as a whole body assessment. Now, sometimes that's overkill. If we want to do, for example, an intracranial angiogram, we might just cannulate individual arteries directly. So we had a um, bleeding tonsillar fossa after a surgical procedure yesterday. So we just cannulated the common iliac, a common carotid artery and did a selective angiogram. So we don't always do whole body, but that's our preferred technique because it's remote from where the pathology is so that we don't disturb the area of potential bleeding. So we're, we're remote from that. We inject through the groins. The issue of intracranial, raised intracranial pressure is a very interesting one. So we've done quite a lot of work in this and you can't overcome intracranial pressure in, in death like you can't in life. So it's very mm. difficult to get contrast into the cranial cavity in someone who's brain dead, who's got a grossly swollen brain. So what you have to do is um, to remove the skull cap, for example. You can take off the skull and uh, uh, that does relieve the pressure. And sometimes you're looking at skull base arteries and by actually cannulating individual arteries, you can actually sometimes force contrast up intracranial that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do in life, but perhaps with a, with a syringe and a fair amount of pressure, you can get contrast to go up in particular to the basal arteries. And that's most importantly in the, as I presented in my talk, the basal subarachnoid hemorrhage story yes. of the, the punch and the vertebral artery dissection. With reasonable pressure on the syringe, you can get it to at least go up into the uh, vertebral arteries and show whether there's a contrast leak. Claire, Chris alluded to the fact that you do it slightly different in Leicester. We focus mainly on cardiac um, angiography. Okay. So we cannulate the carotid artery and use a Foley catheter into the ascending aorta blow up the balloon to occlude the aorta, uh -huh. um, and then direct, put contrast directly into the coronary arteries. Um, and the reason oh, wow. for doing that is most of our work is done now to investigate natural deaths. And okay. at the time we started doing this, ischemic heart disease was the most common cause of death that we needed to diagnose in the population that were being referred for imaging. And that's why we decided to target the cardiac work. The coronaries. And so, you know, I suppose I hadn't really appreciated that, that you, you didn't get blood clotting like early. What sort of window do you have to be able to do post-mortem CTA? It doesn't clot. That's so it, it stays liquid. So you have plenty of time. In fact, even in decomposed body, you can do angiography. It's not as good, but you can certainly do it. It's not a timing issue. It's just some people clot some vessels more than others. The major problems, pulmonary arteries, I would say, and that's one of the main problems with postmortem CTA is that you can't really differentiate antemortem from postmortem clot in pulmonary arteries uh, to look okay. for pulmonary embolism. But um, most other arteries, the aorta and the heart and so forth, there's, there's usually not that much clot. The blood remains liquid. It forms a hematocrit, so you get the sort of pooling of red cells posteriorly and the supernatant and it just sort of mixes up once you inject contrast and you can do beautiful whole body angiograms just like a clinical case except you're mm. not getting the arterial phase the whatever phase yeah. because obviously you're just filling the tubes so it's just a matter of filling the tubes that you want to fill and then you um and then you scan that's fascinating we're going to wrap up here i think but before we do um, what i'd like to do is perhaps talk about resilience i'd 
mentioned in my talk that you know people ask me why on earth would I do expert witness work if I have to look at bodies of, of children who have been abused and my answer to the question was well I can't change what's happened but maybe I can help bring the person who did it to justice and also help that child be removed from the situation where they were injured and maybe their siblings as well. So at least I get to think about some positive bits about future care for that child or their siblings. How do you or how have you managed to cope with some of the stuff that you've seen and do you manage to leave it at work or does it follow you home? Perhaps I come to you first Claire. Yeah, I think very much the same. It's all about looking to see what you can do to help the family and support them going forwards and doing your best by being able to take care of their loved one for them as well mm. and knowing that you're doing the best for that person uh, and their family and, and, and relatives. I, I don't think you can do this work without it bothering you, yeah. but I think it's important that it doesn't bother you to the point that it is going home with you all the time. Yes, there are always cases that I won't forget, but touch wood, it's never bothered me so much I didn't want to come back to work the next day. And I think that's that's the difference. Um, and particularly when you're doing something like DVI, when it is absolutely overload, it's really important that you're working with a good team yeah. because you can't go out and talk to this to the general public and to your family and things. So I think working with a really good team that you can sort of de-stress with at the end of the day. And even if it's just one case, again, at Leicester, we have a team of radiographers and a team of staff. So having colleagues you can go and talk to, I think is really important. How about you, Chris? I think it's because I'm contributing to, I mean, medical legal death investigation gets done whether I'm here or not. And I think I can really make a difference using radiology. I think I make a big difference every day. DVI is the same. I, I talk about the Black Saturday bushfires that we had here in, in Melbourne. Mm. Massive problem, 174 deaths. And it was the most overwhelming experience. So it was the worst thing I've ever done in my medical career, but it was the best thing I've ever done in my medical career. Mm. I was completely overwhelmed emotionally and whatever but I felt that I was doing incredible things to try and help families find their loved ones that though that were missing so it's that sort of thing I think you just you're making a contribution uh, in terms of the stress and stuff I think everyday work doesn't really affect me so much I think children probably are the things that do affect yeah. me the most I would say seeing young children with trauma and what I agree with Claire it's the team after the DVI, every night after the DVI, we'd all go to the pub and sit and have a drink and just talk amongst ourselves because that's all, all we could talk to. But just debriefing, just just getting out of your system, I think. And fortunately, like Claire, I've been doing it for a long time now. It it doesn't seem to have affected me. Maybe I should ask my wife about that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 a feeling that I'm I make a contribution and to be. To be fair, I, I actually think sometimes in my death investigations, I make more contribution than the living. So, you know, justice, making sure that the right things are done, that there's not injustice as well, that people mm. don't get convicted incorrectly or the other way around. That's where I get, get something out of it. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for joining me um, today for this panel. Thank you for your talks for Radiopedia. And I uh, hope we see you again soon. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thank you to Jeremy, Chris and Claire for that really fascinating discussion there. Mm. And before you say it, Gaylord, I'm going to steal one of your classic <laughs> lines here. 
I'm just glad we have people like Jeremy, Chris, and Claire who deal with important areas like this. <laughs> Very much. And the subtext of that line is always because I'm glad I don't have to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, I am glad. And um, the question Jeremy posed at the end about whether uh, Chris or Claire took their work home with them, whether mm -hmm. it affected them, something I don't think, I mean, we've discussed it here on the podcast before when we spoke to Nathan Manning, interventional radiologist, yeah. mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that as a profession, we discuss that enough. You know, our job is deeply abnormal compared to normal human experience. We see things every day. And in the case of radiologists, I mean, not directly necessarily, but we see new diagnosis of cancer or death or, you know, strokes, et cetera, multiple times every day. And you just become sort of endured to it. It remains really weird that that's the case. And I was thinking about this just yesterday. I gave a tute to some of my trainees in the morning. I have to admit that I went in there a little bit punchy and grouchy. <laughs> I haven't been around the department as much as I usually am, so I don't know these guys as much. And it's like, you're only 170 days away from your exam. And as I say to my two kids, just do better. <laughs> but I was speaking to um, my fellow David afterwards, and he said, you know, if it takes a bit of fear of your tutes for them to study harder, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, that's probably true, but shouldn't your fear of being a mediocre radiologist and miss cancer and misdiagnose patients and have permanent effects on their life be motivation enough to study really hard? And I think that's like proof that you become used to this weird thing that you're doing, that being in a tutorial with Frank being grouchy may be more motivating yeah. than the thing you do. Even if you didn't become used to it, I think ego and embarrassment is such a strong motivator yeah, in true. what we do. And I'd like to say empathy and altruism is a very strong driver, but I don't, I don't think in a lot of people, I don't think it is. And the more I, I get on in years in radiology, the more, unfortunately, I see less and less of that empathy. Well, I think partly that's because we're more and more remote from the patient mm. that's on the other end of the scanner. If the patient's in front of you, yeah, you, it's easier to be more empathic. Yeah. But yeah, no, I agree. The motivation for those, particularly those hot seat type practice sessions mm. is very much, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of not only Frank, but my other trainees. And so that's what really drives them. But yeah, in the back of your mind, hopefully you're, you're thinking they're doing this because they want to be a really good radiologist and, and help patients. The stakes are high, right? Like you forget it because you do it 50 times or 100 times a day. But every scan that comes up, the stakes are potentially literally life and death. And that is a bizarre thing to do as your daily job. Anyway. I think there's a stealth goat in this somewhere, but Gaylord. There's, some, there's something here. It's not as strong stealth as some goat. of your some of your goats, but... There's something. Uh, this is, uh, we, we've had a, a necroradiologist and a stealth goat. <laughs> <laughs> now, is there anything else uh, to chat about from, from this panel discussion? Right. Yep. Sorry. I think this fortnightly podcast thing means I'm in goat withdrawal. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to throw sneak it in. a few in. <laughs> no, there were, there were a couple of things that I really struck me and I wanted to bring up. The first thing that was only sort of touched on was the idea of cerebral swelling post-mortem. 
Oh, they did mention a brain at some point. They, they did. You, you'd, you'd latch onto that. I suddenly focused. It's like my <laughs> cocktail reflex. Um, but there's this idea that uh, this misunderstanding of cytotoxic edema that is throughout uh, pretty much everyone who talks about it, everyone who teaches it, everything you read about it talks about cytotoxic edema being a cause of brain swelling. Mm-hmm. And it's not. And that's why if you suddenly die of a cardiac arrest, post-mortem imaging won't show a lot of cerebral swelling. It'll show cytotoxic edema, meaning fluid. Intracellular fluid. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, fluid from the extracellular compartment will move into cells and you'll get mm-hmm. cellular swelling. But because there's just that much fluid, there's no extra mass. Yeah. To get mass effect, you need to have circulation bringing in more mm-hmm. water. And so really with cytotoxic edema leads to this thing that people don't talk about called osmotic edema, which is where you pull in additional fluid from capillaries to replenish the extracellular space. And that's what gives you cerebral mm-hmm. swelling. And, and this is why a DWI MR will show you cytotoxic edema instantly because it's telling right. you about how much restricted diffusion when all the water is sitting inside the cell membranes rather than in the extracellular space, whereas your CT will take hours before you've got that low density because that's really osmotic edema. Yeah, or your flare or your T2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so you really need that perfusion, that cardiac circulation to allow swelling. And in fact, why non-reperfused infarcts don't swell as much as those mm-hmm. that uh, where the clot breaks down or where you have clot retrieval, right. uh, but an infarct anyway. They swell mm-hmm. a lot more. Anyway, that was something that only caught my attention because uh, I remember being surprised at thinking, oh, yeah, brains, why do these post-mortem MRIs not look like people who have had a terrible hypoxic ischemic brain injury? Mm-hmm. And that's and that's the reason. Uh, but the other one was something I'd never known before, and that was the comment Chris made about blood not clotting, yeah, which I found surprising. So I, I did yeah. a little bit of reading. Oh, good one. Uh, which I've brought to class. And... Uh, <laughs> I found an article uh, titled Biochemistry Changes That Occur After Death, Potential Markers for Determining Postmortem Interval by Donaldson and Lamont from 2013. And and I think I'd like Donaldson and Lamont because the first sentence (laughs) of this study is uh, death is likely to result in very extensive biochemical changes (laughs) in all body tissues. (laughs) Uh, yep. <laughs> we're, we're not certain. We think it's likely. <laughs> anyway, it goes on to say that in a corpse, the plasma d- pH decrease is significant and is thought to activate fibrinolysin enzymes, which prevent mm. blood clotting, resulting in an increase in fluidity of blood. Hmm. It suggests there are two causes for this drop in pH in a corpse that don't occur in a test tube of blood where you're used to seeing blood clot or in a Mm -hmm. kidney dish during surgery or something. And uh, it says, firstly, blood in a tube has no glucose store to supply fuel for anaerobic metabolism. And consequently, no significant lactate accumulation occurs to help lower the pH. And secondly, urethrocytes do not contain lysosomes, so autolysis does not occur, meaning acidic cellular metabolites such as carbon dioxide, 
hydrogen ions, formic acid, lactic acid uh, that generate inside cells are not released rapidly from lysing cells to significantly lower pH, as would occur in a corpse. So there you go. Hmm. Yeah, it was interesting that they can still perform, other than maybe in the pulmonary arteries where sometimes they do get that post-mortem clot, that they can Mm. still perform angiograms. It's amazing. You just assume that stuff would stop moving and then clot off. I always thought that maybe had something to do with the air, exposure to the air would also cause the blood to clot, but Mm. maybe that's just a a myth. Well, no, that's true because air embolism causes microemboli that's not just bubbles, I don't think. I would love to do some kind of observership or something at the Forensic Institute yeah, just to see good. some of this stuff. It would be fascinating, I think. Uh, anything else to chat about? I think that's probably okay. I think we should wrap it up. So how can people get in contact with us, Frank? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gayland and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, email us at a podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and or feedback. Yep. Uh, so should we have different names for the podcast in different parts of the world? Do you call your reporting room a reporting room or a reading room or what else do you call it? Let us know. Do you like Frank's little just do better motto? <laughs> should, should... <laughs> it's positive parenting. <laughs> should, that, should that be the podcast motto? Let us know. Write into us. <laughs> and if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online course courses and our annual virtual conference. In doing so, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 low and middle income countries. Uh, I've been sorting something out related to this this week, Gaylord. Mm-hmm. We had a very, very high bandwidth use for oh, our conference yes. streams because we have free access in all these low and middle income countries and a potential very high bill to pay. So we're <laughs> That's working what on happens that. when six or 7,000 yeah. yeah. people attend a conference. I won't say which video provider we're, we're in conversations with, but we're, we're working our way through it and we're hoping to maintain our viability into the future. <laughs> well, well, how about this? Uh, if said video provider does give us a significant discount, we may mention them next podcast. Yep. Frank will give his very best YouTube reactions to it. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is the best video provider. <laughs> and what, what, what else can people do to help us out, Frank? And, of course, you can also help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Absolutely. All right. We'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Uh, or in the library with the wrench. <laughs> Stay rad, everyone. Stay, Stay rad. rad. Yeah, look out for those cudgels, Gaylord. <laughs> and stealth goats. Stealth goats. All right, see you in a couple of weeks, and maybe we'll talk about Oppenheimer. Yeah, that'd be good. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.